Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Amen. Stuart, said we're in John 15 this morning. We've been preaching a series, we call it Union. We're talking about our union with Christ, our communion with God, and kind of review. We've talked about, uh, for three weeks, we talked about union with Christ. This is something that's unearned, that's uh, from God to us, that can't be lost by us. Uh, we looked at union, our union with Christ, that we're united with Jesus through faith in Romans chapter 6. We looked at how being united with Christ gives us unique access to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. And, and recently, we've, we've been talking more about these patterns of communion, these uh, means of grace, as we discussed last week. And that brings us here to John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, as we discuss reading the scriptures and the important rhythm of, of being in the Word of God. I wonder if we might give an analogy this morning that would actually help us to kind of understand the flow of this series and exactly how it works. Uh, imagine a ship, if you will, right? The ship is in the midst of this topsy-turvy sea, right? And what you have to have in a ship, now there's a lot of engineers in this room, so I've got to be really careful, Right? What you have to have in the ship is you have to have what they call ballast, right? You have to have something, some kind of weight in the hull of the ship that actually keeps the ship up and down, vertical, right? Because as the storm tosses and turns, right, that ship wants to do this. But if you have more weight in the bottom, it keeps it up and down. Well, this morning, we are putting ballast into our souls, into our hearts. We need to be those people that have weight inside of us so that the storm around us does not toss us around, so that the circumstances we face do not push us here and there. Paul actually uses this analogy in the Scripture, talking about those people who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We need to be those who are anchored. We are rooted in the gospel and in Christ. And so here's where we're headed this morning. God's words are essential to abiding with him. We're going to look in John 15. Jesus is going to talk a lot about abiding. And kind of toward the tail end, we're going to just pull out this theme of how the Word of God is central to this issue. Now, I'll be honest. This isn't the, the, the initial reading of the text. You read through this text, and, and you see a lot about abiding. You see a lot about bearing fruit. But when we kind of dig a little bit deeper underneath the surface, I think we're going to find a deep resonance here about the Word of God. We're going to see this in, in three ways. Jesus is the true vine in verse 1. We are the branches in verses 2 through 6. In verses 7 through 11, we're going to see the benefits of this. And then finally, as we kind of get back and, and kind of pull all these things together, we're going to go back and look for the theme of the Word of God and how it comes out here in John chapter 15. I'm going to read here in a second, but first I want to pray one more time. God, we ask now that you would open these words to our minds, that you would allow us to understand your heart and your desire. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's dive into this first section here in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. See, literally, the term uh, here is, uh, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. What are we talking about with this true vine? How is Jesus like a vine? Right? I have vines that grow in my yard, but not intentionally. Right? There are things that are just growing there. I have all kinds of things growing in my yard that I don't intend for them to grow. But what is Jesus getting at saying he's like a vine? By way of analogy, we'll figure out later on through the passage that Jesus is like this plant that when we're rooted in him, that's how we bear fruit. And that's a significant portion that we're going to get to down the line. But uh, there's also kind of a biblical precedent in the Old Testament about the vine. There's passages like Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, or I believe it's Psalm 80 or 81 or 82, somewhere in there, where they speak about the vine of Israel. But specifically, this really comes to bear in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And I was going to pull this up on the screen, where, where the prophet, writing on behalf of God, says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard in a very fer- on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked uh, for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Go ahead to the next slide there. And now... I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make a waste, make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no more rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. You're saying, Jason, why are you reading this long passage? See, what this is showing us is that there's Old Testament precedent for Jesus to talk about the vine. When Jesus is talking about the vine, it taps into all of this Old Testament imagery. In fact, if you were to go into the temple of God, you would actually see uh, kind of... uh, 
clusters of grapes around the perimeter of, of the ceiling. That's how the, um, uh, the temple itself was designed. See, it's kind of like a, a national symbol. It's almost like stars and stripes are for us. And when Jesus is tapping into this imagery of the vine, he's tapping into some of their history and their nationality saying, I am the true vine, the the disobedient Israel that disobeyed God, that God promised judgment to in Isaiah, that God promised judgment to in Jeremiah chapter 2. I'm the true vine. I'm the obedient son that, that God has not had. So where Israel failed to be God's fruitful people, Jesus is now portraying himself as God's true vine. Now, the second part of this is that the father is the vine dresser. Literally, it's the the term used for farmer or husbandman. Of course, I've never referred to a farmer as a husbandman, but it's true. The vine dresser is the father. The father then is some way uh, directive to the son. He cares for the son. He cultivates the, the thriving of the son. We've seen this throughout the book of John and in places like John chapter 5. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says. He says in in John chapter 8, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. Or just a, a chapter ago in John chapter 14, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. See, as the father has shown Jesus what to do, he's cared for him like like a a farmer cares for a vine. And he's cultivated it and brought it to fruition. This is the imagery that Jesus is putting in front of us. He's the true obedient son who's been truly manicured and cared for by the good, loving father. This is what we see in verse 1. It kind of sets the tone for this analogy that we're going to see in verses 2 through 6. See, in verses 2 through 6, we see we are... The branches. See, what happens in these verses is Jesus uses this term or this kind of uh, tool, I'll say, and it's called chiasm. So the Greek letter chi looks like our letter X. Uh, Go ahead and pull up the next slide here, Owen. You see how on the one side it looks like half of an X? Well, this is what Jesus is doing as he's speaking. And you can see that the first point, letter A, corresponds to the final point. So verses 2 through 3 correspond to verse 6. And verse 4 corresponds to the latter half of verse 5. So he starts off and he talks about fruitful and unfruitful branches. And then he gives a call to abide. And then he's going to talk about how he is the vine and we are the branches. And then he's going to give another call to abide. And then he's going to talk about more unfruitful branches. He's going to kind of work his way in and then work his way back out with the same theme. See, you didn't know you were going to learn about the Greek language here this morning, did you? But here we are. See, the purpose of various types of branches. Jesus wants to talk about this in verses 2 through 3 and in verse 6. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruitful. Look again at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered together, thrown into the fire, and burned. See, at the beginning of this analogy, Jesus describes the purpose of these different types of branches and how they're used, right? Those branches that don't bear fruit, what do you do with them? What do you do with a vine branch that bears no fruit? It's not like you can take it and build a shelf or or something else. You burn it. That's the only purpose that you have 
with it. This is the language of Ezekiel 15 as well, where God says the same thing. God gets even, Jesus gets even more graphic here in verse 6, 8, or verse 6, where he says, anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown like a, uh, away like a branch and it withers, and then it's gathered, and then it's thrown into the fire, and it burns, right? Of course, we don't miss the implication here that, that Jesus is talking about the burning of hellfire, right? That the, the idea that fruitless people, fruitless individuals who aren't bearing fruit of, of abiding in the vine run the risk of being thrown into hellfire, right? That, that Jesus is not mincing words. He, he's being very clear about what it is to be unfruitful. And so we've got to stop and we've got to say, well, what is this fruit that we're talking about here? There's lots of conjecture about this. Some people say that the fruit is converts. And they specifically get this. If we go back down to verse 16, uh, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. What kind of fruit abides? Well, converts, right? And so they're looking at this passage and they're saying Jesus is talking about the fruit of conversions, that Christians should see individuals come to Christ through their ministry. The problem with this is when we come back up to verse 2 and we say, uh, as Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear converts, it kind of gets a little wonky, right? That doesn't seem to make sense. So maybe it's more than that. And some people will look on and they'll say, maybe this is uh, in keeping with the fruit of the Spirit, like Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Isn't there a song that goes through all those things, right? Well, that also might work. But probably what this is really speaking about is all of this. It's the the new life of faith, and it's uh, living out in the midst of, of other unconverted people. It's productive faith that lives out the ethical standards of God's law, that submits to God's design and desire, that wants to uh, tell others about the hope that they have in the gospel. It probably encompasses all of those things, that this abiding life, this fruitful life, is really just putting your arms around this renewed life that Jesus has given us. And so when when Jesus is calling us to this fruitfulness, that's exactly what he's speaking about. So then we see the second phase in verses 4 and 5, which is this call to abide. Abide in me, he says in verse 4, unless you abide in me. Verse 5, he says, whoever abides in me. Jesus is saying that we cannot bear fruit apart from our connection with him. In fact, he's so strong on this point, he states it both positively and negatively in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. That sounds like Yoda, doesn't it? He it is that bears much fruit, right? He's positively stated. He's saying if you abide in Christ, you, you bear much fruit. But he follows on the heels of that with this negatively stated part, statement. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we just do well to just let that sit on us for a second, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing good in regard to fruitfulness before God. Romans 8 is so clear about this. They cannot submit to the law, or they do not submit to the law, nor can they. Uh, The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. So we recognize this morning that without Christ's life in us, we will not produce fruit. 
And so Jesus is, is the root to our fruit. Jesus is the means where we put on real fruitfulness out, uh, in our communion with Christ. And further, it means that all apparent fruitfulness is really assessed by this connection. You know, we have these statements from Jesus in places like Matthew 7, where these people come to him and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we cast out demons in your name? Did we perform any miracles? And Jesus looks at them. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. See, there's a, an air of, of fruitfulness that has to be assessed by its connection to Jesus Christ. Abiding in the true vine of Jesus produces real fruitfulness, not just apparent fruitfulness. So finally, the center of this whole section is in verse 5, the first point of verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You might take this in a couple different ways, right? Jesus is central, we are peripheral. Jesus is um, essential, we are non-essential. That's language for today's moment, isn't it? Non-essential, essential. The point being so utterly clear here that you and I are not to exist like a stick planted into the ground. We have to be connected to the vine. If we want to be fruitful, we have to abide. So Jesus doesn't wane on his clarity. Verses 7 through 11, though, he starts to unpack some of the benefits of this life in the vine. Read it with me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's just walk through this and just pull out the plethora of blessings that God has for us in Christ. Let's look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask what ever you wish and it will be done for you, right? See, the benefit of abiding in Christ and, and letting his words abide in us is that we pray in the will of God. As, as God's words abide in us, we pray in the will of God, and therefore, whatever we pray, we should have an expectation of its positive affirmation, right? Whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So the first thing is answered prayer. Second thing, verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The second benefit is the Father's glory, that in abiding in the vine, in living out this fruitful life, what we see is maximum glory to the Father. Matthew chapter 5, right? You don't hide your good works under a bushel, you let it shine, right? Hide it under a bushel now. I'm going to let it shine, right? There we go. No, we, we are those who do our good works before men so that they what? They glorify God who's in heaven. They don't uh, 
refract back upon us. They actually give glory to the Father who has changed us fundamentally. So we have answered prayer. We have glory to the Father. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, abiding in the vine helps us keep the commandments of God. It's the means by which we keep his commandments, why we guard those commandments. And verse 11, the final benefit is joy. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So we've kind of done a flyover of this passage, right? We see Jesus is the true vine. He is the, the new Israel, the obedient son, the one that stands in the presence of God and pleads a better righteousness than the, that of the blood of Abel. He's also told us that we ourselves are the branches, that as we are connected to the vine, we ourselves can bear fruit. We can become fruitful in Christ. But then in verses 7 through 11, what he's telling us is he's telling us these advantages, answered prayer, glory to the Father, abiding in Jesus' love for obedience. And then finally, in verse 11, true joy. So the main gist is this. You and I must be connected to Jesus to be fruitful. And as Jesus is the true vine, we must bear fruit through our connection with him. As here, you might just kind of raise your hand and say, I don't get it. We just kind of flew through this passage and we talked kind of these vague generalities about abiding and, abiding and bearing fruit. And you might say, but how? How? How do I abide in this vine? And it's there that we stop, and we want to look a little bit deeper. I want to draw your attention just a few things in this passage uh, that, that kind of stood out to me. Look at verse 4. Jesus gives this phrase. He says, abide in me, and I in you. Simple enough, right? But he gives almost the exact same phrase with slightly different wording in verse 7. It says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. He's added to the phrasing there a little bit, hasn't he? It's not just that we abide in him and he abides in us. It's, it's that we abide in him and his words actually abide in us. See, there's three different words used throughout this passage here that, that would describe the word of God. And in verse 3, it says, already you are clean because of the word. In verse 7, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's a different term. And then in verse 10, if you keep my commandments. Three different terms, all kind of referring to different things. We want to kind of just break those apart for a second because they are three different terms in the, in the Greek. Typically, when you're reading a passage, you'll see, you see the word logos, word. Right? We remember back to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, Jesus, the person. Well, that's the Word that's used in verse 3. And notice that it's singular. There is one Word. Well, when we get to verse 7, we're using a different term. It's rhema. If you abide in me and my words, my rhema, plural, abide in you. Well, then when we get to verse 10, there's, there's multiple commandments, the entelos, the, the commandments of God. 
Well, how are we to understand all of these kind of interplays and, and what's happening in this, this passage? See, what I would like to set in front of you today is that there's a different understanding that when God gives us one word, the logos, and specifically in verse 3, that makes us clean, he's talking about the overarching arc of the New Testament or the, of the Bible, the scriptures. This one story of God's redemptive work that takes us from Adam to Revelation, that undoes our sinfulness, that brings us into the presence of God through the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. This is that one message that is on our lips and in our heart as we resonate with the truth of the gospel. But when we get to verse 7 and we see that there are multiple words that abide in us, these are the individual uh, utterings. That's what the word actually means. The utterings of Christ, the things that he's talked about, his commandments, theological principles, the parables that he's spoken. Those things rest inside of us. They guide us and direct us. And then finally, the commandments, they are morally binding for us in verse 10. See, underneath all of this is this, yes, we, we are called to abide in the vine. We are called to abide in the vine so that we can be fruitful. But we need the words of God so that we can abide appropriately. So if you were to ask the question this morning, how do I abide? I want to pull out four things that will show us what it means to abide in Christ. From this passage that, that stand out to me. What does it mean for us to abide in Christ? What does it look like for us? Well, first, we see that abiding in Christ means being made clean. Let's go back to this statement in verse 3 and what he says. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, right? Jesus is kind of tapping into this language. He's already used this in John chapter 13 when he's spoken to Peter. Peter uh, has this objection where, where Jesus is going to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter objects to this and says, hey, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And, of course, this whole dialogue goes on. And eventually Peter says, you know, not just my hands and my heads, but my, my, you know, everything. Wash all of me. And Jesus says, well, you don't need to be washed because you've already been made clean. It's the same language he uses here in John 15. See, there is a part of the word of God that cleanses us. If we were to kind of just walk through the scriptures and think through it, we would go back to Psalm 19. It's uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring or converting the soul, as Spurgeon has said. Romans chapter 10 says that it's, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, when, when we're talking about husbands and wives and how they uh, image forth the gospel, uh, Paul says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by what? By the washing of water with the word. In James chapter 1, James says that it's by the word of truth that we are brought forth, that it's the word of God that actually affects or causes the conviction of the Holy Spirit in God's people so that they might place their faith in Jesus Christ and find forgiveness. This is the process by which we are saved, by which we are cleansed. This is a saving word. It's the whole message of the Bible such that all of our rebellion, our sinfulness, our carelessness is soaked up at the cross. So abiding in Christ means being made clean. Secondly, abiding in Christ means letting his words abide in us. 
This is where we get in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. See, Christian people should love God's words, shouldn't they? Christian people should be enamored with the scriptures. We should delight in the things that God says to us. If we were to kind of flip back a few passages or a few pages into John chapter 6, Jesus has had this hard teaching. He says things like, I'm the bread of life. Uh, he's, he stated this to these crowds, these disciples that were following after them. And eventually, all of these crowds leave him. And he looks back at his 12 disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? And that's when Peter looks back at him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. So Christian people should cling to the words of life. We should be those that are enamored with the scriptures, that memorize the scriptures, that uh, read the scriptures, that know the scriptures. We should be directed by the scriptures. And sad to say, I don't know that that's always the case today, is it? We'll get into this in a moment, but there are so many distractions for us that we find ourselves light in the scriptures and heavy in so many other things. So abiding in Christ means being made clean. Abiding in Christ means letting his words abide in you. Third, abiding in Christ means keeping his commandments. We've already talked about this a few weeks ago, but if we are those who are um, negligent in keeping or guarding the commandments of God, we should not anticipate a deep abiding with Christ. If we are those who are dismissive of the moral restrictions given to us in the New Testament, we shouldn't find ourselves or think of ourselves as deeply Christian. We cannot be abiding in the vine and endlessly pursuing our own sinful desires. This is clear from Jesus' statements here in John 14 and 15 and 16. So we cannot be tied to Christ without the word of God. It's the word of God that converts us. It's the word of God that abides in us. It's the word of God which commands us. A few years ago, I was uh, working with a youth group. And one of the kids was, uh, he was one of the volunteers' kids. He'd been around church his whole life. Um, And he made this statement. He was complaining about having to come back to youth group every Wednesday night, right? And he made this statement. He said, the problem is I already know all this stuff. I've I've heard all of these stories before. I, I know all of these things. And if we're honest with ourselves, we ourselves have the same attitude, don't we? We already know what this says. We know the stories. We, we know the prophets. We know uh, the Old Testament stories. We know some of the New Testament commandments. We, we know this stuff. We were raised in it, many of us. And see, the problem is that uh, that attitude kind of is pervasive for us. We think about holiness in knowledge-based categories, We think about our spiritual vitality through the lens of what we know about God. But really, what Jesus is talking about here requires more of us, doesn't it? Too often we think about uh, Bible study as 
information transfer. We think about reading the scriptures as an academic pursuit. We think about kind of memorizing just so we know these things. But here, Jesus tells us that the end of these words should be relational and spiritual. And we should look to linger in God's presence, that we should look to, to stay in the words of God. Abiding isn't just about knowing or doing. In some sense, it's about delighting, about trusting. Let me ever think about that. Why in John 15 does Jesus use the word abide or remain? Why doesn't he use the word know? Jesus isn't interested in our ability to answer Bible trivia questions. Jesus wants us to sit underneath his commandments, to wait. Which brings us to the fourth thing. The abiding in Christ looks like Christ abiding in the Father's love. Verse 10, look at verse 10. If you abide, or if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See what he's doing here? He's giving us an analogy, right? If, if you keep my commandments after abiding in my love, it's just like when I kept my Father's commandments by abiding in his love. See, Jesus was this perfect example of abiding, wasn't he? He shows us exactly what it means for him to abide, for us to abide. Jesus was one who so clung to the Father's desire and design that he, he not only lived contrary to all those that were his contemporaries, he actually went to the cross and laid down his life. And in that way, Jesus isn't just exemplary for us. He's the means by which we abide. It would be wrong for us to say that the point this morning is be like Jesus and abide. Right? Just be like Jesus. Just abide in his love. Just do the right thing. Just uh, study the word. Just do the right thing. Do the commandments. Put on these attitudes of holiness. Just do it. Rather, we have to see this morning that we can abide because Jesus did so first. We can put on these patterns of living and abiding with Christ because he did so before us. This all seems kind of theoretical. What's it mean for you tomorrow? Let's say you get up early in the morning, you're going to go to your job, and you get up early in the morning to read your scripture, to have a season of prayer. What does it mean for us to abide tomorrow, Monday, August 24th, 2020? That means that we would sit before the scripture, and we would recognize these words to be words to us from a God who cares for us, to sit beneath that authority, beneath that weight, and to say, God, what do you desire of me? What is it that you want of me? How have you equipped me by your grace to fulfill these things? I think that's more to what it means to abide than for us to just mindlessly wake, read through our 15 verses or whatever else it might be, close our Bible and walk away and not remember. Now, 
want to just stop and just take in the moment because for us as, you know, we're in the 21st century, right? This takes on a different kind of practice than it might have 100 years ago. And so I want to just talk through some practical tips of abiding in the word and uh, work through some of the things that I think sometimes are just uh, patterns that work against us. The first thing I would say is let's limit our information intake. I just stumbled over that, so I'm going to say it again. Limit your information intake. Right now, we have more information pushed at us than any generation previous to us. Have you ever thought about this? I mean, we have entertainment sources. You have most likely have a Netflix account or Hulu or Disney Plus, or if you're like one of those Christian people, the Pure Flix things or whatever else, right? There are countless movies, TV shows, etc. to be engaged with. Uh, we have all of that entertainment at, at a click's notice, right? At a moment's notice, we can watch those things on multiple devices, phones or computers or TVs or whatever else it might be. You have information sources. You have news outlets on a 24-hour news cycle. Let's just... Stop and think about that for a second. 24-hour news cycles mean that they are constantly uh, beholden by overstimulation and overstatement. They are overstating news intentionally because they're trying to create news. I remember my wife came back one time from being at someone's house, and she said, I've spent this much time uh, watching this particular news network, and it just has me anxious from just watching and taking in all of this news. Doesn't that create problems in the soul? We have social media accounts that give us access to people from around the world. We have that at our fingertips so that we can check it all the time. Uh, Jen Wilkin uh, is a Bible teacher from Texas, and she says that we weren't created to know everything that's happening in the world. You and I weren't designed to know something that's happening on the other side of the world from us. And so we bear that Pressure. We, we bear that, that idea that we, we take in all of the friends and, and uh, relatives and everything else and all of their pressures and we put them on the top of our mind. And that's not to mention things like podcasts or TED Talks or infotainment or whatever else it is. We have all of these things just pressuring us and giving us a constant feed of information that is coming at us more fast than we can process. So can I encourage you this morning to think of your information intake like a food pyramid. You're familiar with the food pyramid, right? You're supposed to start, I think the bottom level is sugars. That's the thing you're supposed to fill your diet with is, is sugars, right? Well, I think it's on the slide here this morning as Owen's going to pull it up for us. This is what Brett McCracken describes as our wisdom pyramid. The, the bottom layer should be the scriptures, the Bible. The second layer should be the church, uh, the tradition of our local church, uh, the feeding we get from the sermons, nature and beauty, uh, books, internet, and then finally it's Twitter, right? And even then, I think you could lop off the top of the pyramid and not do any worse in your life, right? See, we've got to control the information that we take in because sometimes it's just sending us in contradictory directions, We've got to make sure that the bulk of our diet is coming from the scriptures, that the weight that we are putting into our hearts and into our minds is coming from the words of God, not from some internet source, not from some news source, not from some other place. So the first thing we do is we limit our diet. We cut the fatty calories out of our diet, right? 
The second thing is we bring in the good calories. We, we soak ourselves in the scriptures. We just immerse ourselves into what God tells us from these words. Because it is a delight and a privilege for us to have this. Do you realize how many people in the last 2,000 years have died for this? Do you realize how many Christians, brothers and sisters, that we will see in heaven that never had this? I can take you to museums where men went to their death clinging to the Bible. Their blood soaks the pages of their Bibles. Because we have lost touch with how privileged we are to have this. We have like 15 different translations you can read, more than that, right? You've probably got 10 copies at your house. You've got, uh, it's on your phones, it's on your laptops, it's everywhere, right? We need to immerse ourselves in this so that we can abide with God. This this thing is a means for us to, to know God and to to reshape our character to that character that God has exhibited to us. It's a chance for us to soak in the grace of God as God tells us the story of his redemption in Christ. Isn't that where we should be investing our time and our attention? Final thing. We want to limit our information intake. We want to soak in the scriptures. The final thing is we want to fight for proper affections. Can I just encourage you to fight, to delight in the right things? Do not be content to have a little bit of time in the word and then move on with your life. Let these scriptures inform your desires, shape your character, hone the things that you love and that you want. Can I just say this, that scripture memory is a great tool for this? When we hide the words of God in our heart, as Psalm 119 says, it's so that we might not sin against him. And when we take in and we ingest these things, like the prophet Jeremiah says, they're sweet to us. We should look for these scriptures to form us. We should look to these scriptures to delight us. And when we find our affections, our our desires, our wants are out of line with the scriptures, we should fight hard to restore the things that God desires for us, right? Through patterns of confession and repentance. See, here's my concern this morning is that just like we opened with this analogy of this ship tossed in the storm, Right now, there's no end of waves coming your way, is there? There's no end to the wind that's seeking to topple you over. There's no end to the pressures that you face. Every place I go, I hear the words COVID-19. I hear the word mask. I hear conversations everywhere all the time. We have pressures on us that we don't even know are there. We have uh, societal pressures, things that are going on in our country. We have things that have been going on in our country for generations that we're not even thinking about. We have all of these things pressing upon us. And the thing that we need to do is gain ballast, is to put weight into the hull of the ship so that we might not shipwreck. Let's pray.
Father, we ask for that very thing. Make us weighty in the scriptures. Make us a people who delight to hear from you. Form us through the teaching and preaching of your word, through our private study of your word, through our small groups devoted around your word, through our times of scripture memory, through praying the scriptures back to you. Father, form us so that we desire what you desire and we hate what you hate. Lord, we plead with you for this. We, we sense the urgency of this moment. We know that we need this. So, Father, press these things on our heart. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.